In this episode, I'm back in the room with Jeff Vanderstelt discussing his new book, Gospel Fluency. Welcome to In the Room, episode number 53. My name is Ryan Hughley. I'm the senior pastor at Harvest Bible Chapel in Hickory, North Carolina. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. In the Room is your opportunity to listen in on my conversations with pastors and authors and artists about what they do and how they do it. Uh, we are uh, here at our church offices. I'm here with uh, Scott Holhouse. Scotty, how are you today? Doing great. It's good to be here and good to be recording a, another episode. Good. That was a really compelling way. <laughs> for you to join the conversation. <laughs> well, there's no good way other than just being just like, getting into hey, it. how are you? It's That's good to true. be here. All right. Well, on this episode, uh, Jeff Vanderstelt uh, is on. It's the second time uh, that I've talked with him. I remember his first book, Saturate, was all about missional communities, and we had a great chat then. He has a new book called Gospel Fluency, uh, which is also excellent. And I'm just curious at uh, how you did in high school at learning foreign languages. Uh, I was. What did uh, you take? Exceptionally first of all? good. Except that doesn't surprise My me. My name in Spanish class was Nacho, <laughs> and <laughs> and my greatest memory from that class is not learning Spanish, but we had a student teacher, and he just could not control the class. <laughs> and one time, I climbed out the window. <laughs> And walked around outside during it. And so that's what I recall from learning a foreign language. I did not do it. I took one year of Spanish. It was not, it was not pretty. No muy bien. Yeah. No fluent. Not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I think that uh, Jeff's book is great. Uh, The subtitle is Speaking the Truths of Jesus into the Everyday Stuff of Life. And one of the things that I love about Jeff is he is exceptionally gifted, I think, because of a lot of hard work at speaking the gospel in a way that is very effective and sincere into every facet Mm -hmm. and aspect of life. And um, especially doing membership interviews over the last 10 years, one of the things that I always ask people uh, who want to become members in our church is just if, if, uh, I just want to hear them articulate the gospel for themselves. And it's amazing how godly, mature, um, seasoned Christians who get asked that question yeah. immediately, like you would think you were asking them to take like a med school exam. Yeah, like they just they clam up. People get so nervous when asked that question, and I think it really does reveal the need for a book like this. Yeah, totally. I think one of the, one of the um, one of the parts of this interview that I really appreciated was he just kind of exemplified. Um, what it looks like to um, to even to view the gospel um, through different through different lenses. You know, mm-hmm. we've heard that analogy. The yeah. gospel is like a diamond. Yeah, and yeah. Um, and he just is able to to look at. So in this season of life, you know, seeing Jesus as this, and and seeing and he just I'm not I'm not going to try to do it because he does it yeah. much better. But, yeah, um, he does have a unique way of being able to do it do it, and it doesn't feel weird and forced. Like I've yeah. I've heard people. You know, where it's like, well, oh, you're struggling with worry? Where, well, Jesus died and rose from the dead, so you don't have to worry anymore. I'm like, yeah. yeah, I get that, that that's true. Yeah. That's also not the most skillful way to speak the truth of Jesus into the everyday stuff of life, like totally. his book says. And so I'm really thankful for the way that he helps us think about that. I think people are going to really enjoy this episode. We talk a little bit more about the things that he's learned now being a couple years uh, in at DOXA. Uh, we talk about the book. We talk about 
what if you go to a church where the gospel is not being preached, and how do you transition, and he's got really good insight into that. So uh, I'm excited for people to listen to this uh, episode, so grab your chair or get your headphones in or whatever you need to do, and come on in the room for my conversation with Jeff Vanderstelt. Well, Jeff, thanks so much for coming on in the room. I think that you are my first repeat guest, so uh, appreciate you coming back and uh, excited to get an update on everything that God's doing at Doxa, and then also to talk again about uh, gospel fluency. So uh, we were just talking a second ago, and you said you're coming up on or at year three at Doxa. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, we celebrated two-year anniversary in January, and so we're entering in, or a couple months into year three right now. All right, excellent. And I'm, I'm curious, when you when you look back on, as someone now, I've just stepped into an existing church after planting one, like you did, and uh, there's, you know, I've faced all kinds of challenges that I expected and many that I didn't. I'm curious, when you reflect on those first couple of years that you've had now, um, kind of both ends of this, what are some things that you are really thankful that you did? And then what are some things that if you could go back, maybe you would do differently? Well, in my case, I stepped into a really broken, hurting church where the majority of the leadership had abandoned the church. So uh, I don't regret taking my time to shepherd mm-hmm. and and care and be a little slow uh, yep. in, you know, not casting too much vision, not pushing too hard towards change, uh, really stepping in and just from the platform, shepherding the, the body as well as in being really present with people. Uh, so that part, I'm, I, I look back and that was hard for me because that's that's not my natural bent is to go slow yeah. and to be primarily healer pastor, even though I know that's a part of the role of pastor. Uh, but it's what I did, and I'm thankful I did that. I think it built trust. I think it's uh, it's reaping much good fruit now. So I, I'm glad for that. I'm glad I just committed myself to preaching the Word, preaching through text, mm-hmm. as most know, because I stepped into a context where they had a high view of the Word of God and the preaching um, to continue in that not only serve to build more trust, but it also became the best means possible to instruct the church in where we're going. So that I'm glad we did, and that we actually did work hard at creating a good Sunday gathering. And mm-hmm. I think some people who know me think that I'm anti-Sunday gathering. I'm not at all. Right. Uh, and so we've done a very good job, I believe, with the team we have of, of produ- providing a really good Sunday experience. So, so those are things I'm thankful for. Uh, getting a lot of time with my leadership and spending time with them—that uh, I think I've done that. I think I could do a better job of that. But those are some of the things I think mm-hmm. in terms of some things that I regret. Um, I think if I could do it over again, I probably would have uh, slowed down and spent more time with each one of my elders, helping them learn how to be a disciple-making disciple, helping them learn how to be on mission and community more effectively. Um, I, I'm now doing more of that, but I think in the first, if I could do it over again, I would have spent the first one or two years really just with them in their communities, helping them see what it looks like to be a missional community in everyday life. So now I'm doing more of that. I didn't do as much as I wish I would in the beginning. So that's yeah. definitely one thing I wish I could do over. That's good. I know, I'm sure that the question that you get over and over again is like, how's it going? Uh, especially with people knowing 
the context and the background that you stepped into, everybody, you know, is like, is this going to make it? Is this going to go well for him? So when, when people ask you that question, um, when, when you think about that, how do you measure success? When you look at Dachshund now, how do you decide, here's how we're doing? Because I do know enough about you to know that it's not just like butts in the seats and um, stuff like that. So what are some of the primary metrics that you look at to measure success? Well, some of the things I'm looking at are going to be the things that you would measure in a disciple. Mm-hmm. And so there's some things that are going to be have we're going to have in common. Like I do think gathering regularly with the, with the body of Christ is a good measurement uh, in the sense of our disciples committed to one another. But I think it's such a minimal uh kind of measurement and unfortunately we don't know oftentimes we don't even measure are the same people gathering or just are yeah, we just measuring good. just blank numbers and most people if you pay attention these days are only attending a couple times a month and so you you could be misled a little bit on faithfulness of the, the disciple so we're we're measuring consistency in gathering not just numbers uh we're measuring uh growth in giving not just dollars yeah, uh, and so we're we actually we have three kind of ways we measure giving, which is we call them uh, uh, average Joe, stingy Steve, and um, Giver Gary. And uh, we're not trying to be male dominant. That's just our financial yeah. guy. Those yeah. three names. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, average Joe is okay. What's our average giving, and is that growing? Per person, are we growing our giving? When I first got here, it was around one percent. Our goal in the first year was to grow it to five percent. Average Joe would be giving five percent. We hit that. We're trying to get that above that. And most average, most churches' average giving per person is around two to three percent in, mm-hmm. in North America. So I'm encouraged by that. We give her Gary is the one who's giving way too much. In other words, he's carrying too much of the the budget. So we want to see that reduced. And then Stingy Steve is just the number of people that are coming that never give, and we. Wanted to see that percentage go down, that there'd be more and more people giving. So we, we do measure giving, but we measure it very specifically around discipleship. Um, we're also measuring how many people are in groups. Um, we measure how many of those groups actually have an identified mission, a people group they're trying to make disciples of. We measure how many of those groups have a shared leadership, so it's not just a one-person-led group, but it's a team, because we have a high view on shared leadership in our church. We're measuring how many of those groups have an apprentice leader that they're training to send out. We're measuring how many groups multiplied and reproduced leadership. Uh, we're certainly me- measuring baptisms. And uh, and then we're measuring um, how many deacons, how many elders. So, so in other words, how many official uh, elder, uh, uh, leaders have we put in place that we can mm-hmm. say these mm-hmm. people are giving governing authority over the body? So those are some things. We're all part of our deacon measurement is also we have four kinds of deacons: pastoral assistants, uh, people who lead ministries people who lead missional communities or or lead serving through a missional community, and people who are deacons to the city. In other words, they're extensions of the church into key places of change in our society. And so even measuring how many different kinds of deacons we have is another key importance for us, because so many churches have deacons that only run their events, yeah, yeah. kind of the programs, versus people that are actually bringing change to their city. So those are things we're looking at as well. So in terms of how we're doing, I think we're doing okay. <laughs> yeah. I think we got a ways to go. I think we got. I told the church when I came, it's a three or five year process to get to where I'd hope we would be, 
And, uh, and the reason why I say that is because, yes, we're, our giving is growing, our groups are growing, we're seeing more shared leadership, seeing more baptisms, we're seeing those things all happen. But I still believe there's a lot more in terms of cl- true discipleship that we yeah. need to grow in. Um, so those are th- things that we're going after. Do you, by any chance, I mean, we're working through here at Harvest in Hickory, we're working through our deacons and leadership and all of that right now. Do you guys have anywhere in writing like your four kinds of deacons and how your leadership structure is set up that people can find that if they want it or not yet? It's not public yet. We just, uh, I mean, it will be. We we do have, um, the process is available, but I don't think we, I, it's more recent that we developed those four categories. Yeah, that's helpful. And we just introduced that to the church. So we'll make that available eventually. Okay. Um, and I, that's uh, probably a good point for me to make in terms of some blog writing, because I, yeah. I, I think too often churches think primarily programmatic in their the way they see deacons. And yeah. I think that's a misunderstanding of the biblical deacon, because yeah. when you see the biblical yeah. deacon, they're, they're really involved in the context of their society and the way yeah. that they're extending the servant arm of the church. Yeah. So. I find in conversation, we seem to have greater and greater clarity around elders and what elders do. But there's still not, I, I don't think, enough really solid, helpful, practical writing on deacons. And uh, so that, yeah, anything that you guys could do on that would be great. But even hearing the four categories that you guys think in is really helpful. So thanks for that. You know, um, another thing I didn't say about yeah. uh, discipleship measurement is we, we are, one of the things we are measuring is we want every member of Doxa, and we do have a formal membership, yep. um, every member to have a discipleship plan that it gets gets revamped at least yearly, if not um, quarterly. Hmm. So something that they're growing in themselves, that they can identify uh, steps they're taking to move forward in a key area of discipleship, whether that's prayer, Bible study, spirit-led life, spirit, dealing with spiritual warfare, um, witnessing solitude. I mean, all the different areas of spiritual growth that we're looking for in our disciples. So we really want to have every single member have a discipleship plan that is being worked on in community uh, that they're going to grow forward in each year. That's excellent. So are the two primary discipleship rhythms, program? I know, I mean, programmatically that you have as a church, is it, is it primarily going to be your Sunday worship gathering and then your missional communities? Is there anything outside of that? It sounds like I know a huge portion of what you guys do takes place, discipleship takes place in the context of the missional community. Are there any other primary rhythms that you're trying to help people take steps into, or is it mainly from a programming standpoint, those two things? We basically have four things, and it, forgive me for the alliteration, but it's gather, go, give, grow. Okay. So gather regularly on Sunday for the larger expression of the church. Uh, go on mission in, in a missional community to be disciples who make disciples of others. Uh, give of your time, talents, and treasures. So that's helping them in their finances, in their schedules, and in the use of their spiritual gifts. And then uh Grow, which is in a DNA group, that's three men or three women getting together on a weekly basis to discover the truths about who God is, what he's done, who they are, and how they should live in the Word of God. So they're reading the Bible together, asking those four questions, nurture those truths into each other's hearts by learning how to repent and believe the gospel wherever they aren't, and then act on those truths by obeying and then telling others what God's doing in your life. So DNA. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that would be the fourth thing. So gather, go, get, grow are the four things that we expect all of our members to actively be involved in. Okay. So for those who read your first book, Saturate, that's largely what a lot of Saturate is about, correct? 
That's right. And so, yeah. so now you have your new book, Gospel Fluency, speaking the truth of Jesus into the everyday stuff of life. So I'm always, I just finished my first book, and uh, I'm always curious. I know what an undertaking it is. And so I'm always curious about motive, you know, what it is that, ha- that drives someone to have a passion for a message so much that they put in the time and the effort, the blood, sweat, and tears to actually write that book. So why Gospel Fluency? Well, I, I found several years ago that I myself didn't have a very good grasp of how the gospel affects everyday life. For me, the gospel had become a message I preached primarily for my justification and my future hope and glory, you know, yeah. glorification, but very little to do with my present-day sanctification and how I walk through everyday life in light of the power of God's saving work in Christ. And uh, I had a pretty significant event uh, where God brought me to the end of myself, and I needed some significant help and counsel. And thankfully, the counselor was a gospel-centered counselor, Mm -hmm. and I found myself getting set free in some significant areas of my life because of the gospel. And uh, I believe that that set me on a trajectory to begin to think through every area of my life that I wasn't walking in line with the truths of the gospel. Of course, I got introduced to to great writing through Edmund Clowney and hearing, listening to Tim Keller and others who really just helped me soak more and more in the gospel. And then I just began to lead people in that. And I found myself intuitively leading people into a gospel fluent kind of culture. But what I discovered is most people didn't know how to do that. Mm -hmm. And they, they wanted it, but they didn't know how to do it. And so then I found myself teaching on it. And the teaching grew in popularity to the point at which people like Justin Taylor or others were saying, you've got to write this down. People need help. You know, like this would be a great, a great gift to the church. And I put it off and put it off and put it off until finally our elders said, no, you have to obey God and steward this. So that's what led to doing it is just because I don't, I didn't never kind of considered myself a writer, though I think I've become one. Um, but I, I love to train, and I love to equip, and I, I believe that if the church could get this, I think it would lead to a far healthier church as well as a far more effective missional church as well. So that, that was my motivation, yeah. as sort of personally, and then saw God use it in a lot of people's lives. The personal piece is interesting because it's amazing. The more test baptism testimonies that I listen to, there's this commonality in most of them, which is like, I thought everything was fine, and then the wheels fell off my life, and I realized that I needed Christ. And so it's interesting that even in your sort of set, I mean, so you were, I mean, you were a believer prior to that, obviously. I was a pastor. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. Uh, so we'll hope. And then, so do you, do you think that, um, that it takes a crisis like that in order for someone to really get it? Or is it just that, that oftentimes we're just doing a poor job of really equipping people in what the, go- the implication of the gospel and the entirety of life? I don't think it needs to take as big of a crisis as it, hit, as, as it was for me, but I think God used that to so deeply set it in me that it would permeate in everything I did. I think it does require many crises, and mm-hmm. what I mean by that is that it's that facing sin head on, it's seeing repetitive behaviors that are 
are broken. It's dealing with the insecurities or fears or guilt and shame that we deal with on a daily basis. I think it's it's into those places that the gospel brings hope and saving power. I think if you don't have an, any acknowledgement that you need the gospel, then it doesn't help you at all. Sure. Uh, I think it always starts with some kind of I'm I'm lacking. I'm in need, and and that's when we understand we need the power of God to save us. So, but I think those are small things. They don't have to be massive things. Sure. It can be. I just lost my temper, or right. I I shamed my kids into changing their behavior versus giving them the gospel to transform their hearts. Yeah. Hey, sorry for interrupting the conversation, but I wanted to tell you about uh, a project that I've worked hard on over the last year and I'm very excited about. It's my new book, Eight Hours or Less, Writing Faithful Sermons Faster. Uh, Time in our culture is one of our greatest commodities. And one of the biggest time investments for pastors is certainly sermon preparation. Uh, But what if there were a way for you to write better sermons in less time? And that's really my hope and my prayer for my new book, Eight Hours or Less. Uh, It's a step-by-step guide for improving your process and being the best steward of time uh, that God's given you. And so if you have not yet had an opportunity and you've been blessed by the podcast, uh, it would be a huge blessing to me if you would uh, run over to Amazon.com or uh, my website, RyanHughley.com, and pick up your copy of Eight Hours or Less. So what, what would you say to the person who says, well, this is the first time I'm hearing that the gospel is about more than my justification. Um, mm. how, how does the gospel impact the entire life? Yeah, I would, when I, I would take them to 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says uh, that we are being saved by the gospel, not just have been saved. And then he references both the, the death and the resurrection of Christ. And I think it's important that we recognize that he... he calls us to not think just the cross, which so many people think of, okay, he died for my sins, I've been made right with God, but he also references the resurrection, which is he's victorious over the power of sin, so that today I can live a new life with power over sin. As Paul says elsewhere, I'm no longer a slave to sin, I've been set free, I'm a slave now to righteousness. And so the gospel gives me that power to live a new life today, and so the person who doesn't know that, I would say you're missing out on the abundant life Jesus promised, that the the good news of Jesus is not just that he died for your sins, but that he overcame the power of sin to set you free to live a new life. And that new life is available in the truths of the gospel and in us walking in faith. As Paul says, as we hold firm to the gospel, as we stand on the, or stand in the gospel, then we find ourselves being saved. We experience the present reality of God setting us free to live new life right now. And I think most Christians are living a very dismal picture of the beautiful, free life God intends for them to have today. It's so much more abundant than most people have come to experience. That's good. And I will tell you, one of the things I found the most helpful was uh, early in the book when you talk about Ephesians 4 and the whole speaking the truth in love, which is a verse that I've heard over and over in Christian counseling and growing up in the church and all of that. But you uh, have a paragraph where I'll just read it because it did really stand out to me. Um, so you're referencing Ephesians 4, 11 to 15, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So then you said, we need to read just a few verses further to discover what Paul means. He clarifies the truth that we are to speak to one another in verse 21. He states, the truth is in Jesus. Speaking the truth in love for Paul is shorthand for speaking what is true about Jesus to one another that is speaking the gospel to one another. So can you... 
talk just uh, a little bit about that in general because um, I've I hadn't ever heard it put quite that succinctly and that specifically what Paul's talking about is speaking the gospel to one another, the truth of Jesus to one another, and not just the overarching general truth of God's word. It seems like a subtle nuance, but I think it's significant. Yeah, I think that what we need to recognize is that when when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, we recognize that Jesus is saying in that moment that all the truths of God are summed up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I think when Paul is saying we speak the truth in love, and later on he says the truth is in Jesus, he's just reiterating what Jesus already said about himself. So now we're saying, okay, if you've seen Jesus, Jesus says you've seen the Father. So if you want to know the truth about what God is really like, you look to Jesus. He is the full expression of the deity in bodily form. And if you want to know the truth that applies to your life, you've got to look at not only who Jesus is, but what he's done for us, that the, the life he lived is the picture of what what humanity is always meant to be like. And so anything that doesn't line up with the, the, the true human, which is Jesus, then we should ask ourselves, what happened? Where did we go astray? And then I think there's another part of that is not only is he the true image of God, so we know what God's like, and he's the true human, so we know how the life is to be lived, but in any way that we fall short, we look to him as the one who not only did it for us perfectly, so he's our substitute for the life we didn't live, but he also died for the way we didn't, so he's the substitute for uh, the the death we deserve. So Mm -hmm. he... And so when we talk about speaking the truths of Jesus now into the everyday stuff of life, we're saying sometimes we need to speak the life of Jesus into yeah. situations. Sometimes we need to speak the death of Jesus into a situation. Sometimes we need to speak the resurrection of Jesus into a situation in terms of his his putting to death sin, uh, his dealing with Satan, his overcoming the powers of evil. And sometimes we need to speak of his present uh, ascension and intercession before the Father on our behalf because he's speaking a far better word over us than our parents did or our peers did or even our own conscience does. So when we look at the totality of Christ and all that he is and all that he has done and is doing and will do, then we have so much good news to speak to the problems of our everyday life. Mm -hmm. Well, before we, that's really good, before we talk about just a little bit about how we practice that and get more fluent in that, um, you wrote a little bit about your theory as to why we don't do that and that a lot of the time you know we chalk it up to it's a lack of training we're insecure we don't know how and your theory is which i tend to really agree with is that it's not so much a lack of training but a lack of love and when i used to teach um our membership classes one of the things that i used to ask people to stop and to really think about is when you think about the fact that surrounded we are surrounded right now by thousands of people literally who don't know jesus and right now are on a trajectory to spend eternity apart from God in hell. How do you feel about that? And then my response was oftentimes, truthfully, many of us, if we're often, we feel nothing. And, and so I agree with you. I think that's a severe problem. So how do we grow in that, mm-hmm. in, our, in our love, having love be what our big motivator is, rather than guilt, rather than shame, rather than how, mm-hmm. how, how do we grow in a love that motivates us to actually become even have a desire to become fluent in the gospel. 
Yeah, I, it's a good question, and I, 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 the way I say it in the book is that you speak most about what you love most, and then you love most what you talk about most. That's good. And so, uh, I, I've learned in my own relationship with my wife that when my love grew cold toward her, it wasn't that she became less lovely; it's that I forgot how lovely she was when I first met her. Oh, that's good. And so I need to rejoice in the wife of my youth, and and by doing that, I remind myself and I say out loud to her how beautiful she is, how godly she is, how much I loved love her, and why Why are all the reasons that I love her? And that stirs up my love again, uh, so it doesn't grow cold. It's, it kind of fans the flame of my love. And then as that fan gets hotter and hotter and hotter, the more it's easy, it, the easier it is to tell her how much I love her because I really do, and to tell others about her. And the same is true, I think, in the gospel. When we first meet Christ, there's this, this f- flame of, of passion that if you really know him and you really met him, there was that moment where you're like, I can't even believe it's too good to be true. But the problem is, is we stop talking about him. We stop fanning into flame that mm-hmm. passion. And we stop talking about how good the gospel is and how good Jesus is and how amazing his grace is. And so uh, I have to then remind myself again. And that's why I think we need to gather regularly together because we hear each other proclaim the good news of Jesus. We speak it into each other's lives and that fans into flame that, that kind of cold love and it becomes hot again. Yeah. And then as it becomes hot, we can't help but speak about it because you always talk about what you love most and you always talk about what you believe works most effectively mm-hmm. in your life. And if the gospel is, if in it we see the love of God and we also hear it's the power of God for salvation, then we've got the greatest love and the greatest power in the gospel that you could ever know. And the more that you know it's the greatest love and the greatest power, the more that you're going to talk about it because you talk about what you love most mm-hmm. and you talk about what works most. So I think that's where we have to get to. And then now turn that outward because we love because he first loved us. And if mm-hmm. we continue to remind ourselves of the great love that God has for us in Christ, we will we will be compelled to love people. And as we love people and get into their lives and get to know them, it's inevitable that when you really get to know people who don't know Jesus, your heart aches for them to know Jesus. If your love is stirred up for Christ and your love is stirred up for them, you can't help but want to introduce them to the greatest love of your life because you know it would be the best thing they could ever have in their life as well. So I think it's all of that combined, I think. Mm -hmm. You mentioned in the book, while we're on this topic of love, the number of people that you've met who love the Bible, but at least seem to have real no genuine relationship with Jesus and what a tragedy that is, but sadly not a new one, as that's the same thing that Jesus really accused the Pharisees of. But just your own theory, like how do you, how does that happen? You know, I'm, I'm, so I pastor now um, in the South in a more Bible Belt-esque community. And so obviously that's a concern that is really at the forefront of my mind, that we're not just growing a church filled with people who really know the Bible, but really know and love Jesus in addition to that. Mm-hmm. So how do you think that, how does that happen? Why does that happen? I know that that's something that you've thought about. So just your thoughts on, on the whys behind that. I think it's a matter of worship. Uh, you you build your life around what you believe is the the true God of your life, the true thing that saves you, the true thing that gives you identity and meaning. And for many Christians, they really believe that knowledge of the Bible saves them. Mm-hmm. That. 
uh, studying the Bible will save them. And unfortunately, they've actually take, they've taken Jesus out and replaced him with the Bible. Yeah. And so they actually have more confidence in the written Word of God and its truths than they do in the incarnate Word of God, which the written Word is pointing to. That's good. And so, so I think they, they find in the, the Bible a sense of self-righteousness. If I know it better than you, I'm more righteous than you. If I work hard to obey it better than you, then my, my morality is what gains me my sense of righteousness. So if I know it and obey it, then God will accept me and love me. And the Bible is really clear that that's not how he accepts you or loves you. He accepts you and loves you because Jesus, the true word, came yeah. and became the means by which you are acceptable before God because him being the word and then dying in the, for, in the place of those who don't obey the word enables us to not only have our hearts cleansed, but have the very spirit of God write the word on our heart, give us mm-hmm. the desires of God and the, the, the mind of Christ. And as we get that, that's our righteousness. And yeah. then I, our, our obedience comes out of our re- response to the great work of Christ versus I'm obeying so that God will accept me and love me. And I think for a lot of Christians, they still think knowing the Bible and obeying the Bible is what gets me uh, a standing of righteousness before God, instead of letting the Bible lead me to the end of myself, which makes me very aware that I can't keep it apart from Christ. And it actually is more condemning in that sense, yeah. if I don't have Jesus. Because if I'm really going to uphold all of the law and all the commandments and the scriptures as the thing that makes me righteous, if I'm honest, I'm damned sure. by that. Yeah. But if I realize what it's actually meant to do is lead me to the end of myself and the beginning of Christ, who is the fulfillment of the Word, then I not only love the Word because it led me to Jesus and my need for Him, but I love the Word because of now in Jesus, I actually want to obey it, mm-hmm. and I actually am able to obey it. But it's only because of Jesus. Yeah. So I think if you don't get Jesus, then you end up worshiping the Bible instead of worshiping what the Bible is meant to lead you to, which is Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's good. One of the things I've always appreciated about you— I I've heard you speak in like small groups, private settings. I've heard you speak in public settings and big groups. And regardless of the setting, regardless of the medium or form, one of the things I've always appreciated about you is how fluent you are, to use your word, in speaking the gospel into all of these different situations in life. And so you talk about in the book that, you know, the only way you really get fluent in any language is through practice and immersion. So can you talk a little bit about the person that's like, all right, theoretically, I'm on board with everything that you're saying. How do I, what does it look like for me to actually practice um, speaking the truth of Jesus into the everyday stuff of life? Um, How do I, like, what does it look like for me to do that? I think you, you first of all got to submit yourself to good gospel-centered preaching. Uh, so if your church doesn't do that effectively, you might need to listen online to some who are really good at it. Um, and there are some that are really good at it. I, mean, I already mentioned Tim Keller. Um, I think he's one of my favorites in terms of he's not overly charismatic, he, but but every single time he's going to preach yeah. the gospel. Yeah. Um, Anybody else that you'd recommend? Not to interrupt I you, think- but... I think Matt Chandler does a good job of it from what I've heard. You know, I don't listen to Matt a lot, but when I do listen to Matt, I don't tend to listen to a lot of preachers anymore. I just don't have the time to to listen to too many. But, you know, he's pretty faithful in that from what I've heard and the way he preaches. Um, uh, I I mean, I'm... I feel like I'm pretty good at it. I think I'm growing in it because yeah. I'm learning. Um, and there are others. I mean, I, again, I don't listen to enough to know who to point to. Mm-hmm. Um, you could give some recommendations of people you yeah. listen to. Um, but there are those who do it. And, yeah. um, and, and you'll know. Here's the way you know. At the end of a message, 
were you were you impressed with the speaker or were you impressed with Jesus? Yeah. At the end of the message, where was the weight of the message landing on? On mm-hmm. the work, person work of Jesus or on you to mm-hmm. walk away and work harder, try harder? Yeah. Uh, at the end of the message, you treasure Christ more and have more confidence of his ability to lead you into a new way of living. So that's, that's a good way to test it. Yeah, that's good. Um, so, so being in a church that is gospel-centered in its preaching is a really important part of immersion. Um, mm-hmm. Any other practical things by way of yeah, practice? So that'd, that'd be one. Second, get yourself amongst a group of people who are committed to to saying, we're going to speak Jesus to one another. We're going to remind each other about Jesus. That could be your family, you know, husband, wife, and kids. It could be your dorm mates. It could be your small group, whatever. But just a, a kind of a devotedness to the apostles' teaching and, yeah. and in particular to the, the truths of who Christ is. So just saying, okay, let's learn how to do this. Let's work hard at this. Let's hold each other accountable that if Christ didn't come up as the hope for our problem, the solution to our problem, the truth that we were lacking, that and we didn't do well. Uh, yeah. Then we got to come back and and rethink why did we make it about something else as our hope. So I'd say that learn how to ask key questions like how does the gospel apply to the situation? What about the gospel am I not believing that led to the kind of behavior or lack of spiritual fruit in my life? Mm-hmm. Um, how is Jesus the better solution to the, the problem than what we've been looking to for quite a while? You know mm-hmm. how. How does this passage lead us to the truths of Christ? I teach my kids now every single Bible passage in some way or other is is meant to lead you to Christ, whether it's creating a longing for a better, having a pointer towards Him, uh, being an image or analogy or a metaphor of what Christ is ultimately like. And so even learning how to read your Bible together that way and saying, we're not going to leave this text until we get to how does this lead us to Christ, Christ in yeah, some Christ, way or yeah. another. So I think that's another way to do it. And then just plain practicing it. Yeah. And just like any language, you've got to learn the grammar, the vocab, sentence structure, and culture to learn how to speak it well. And I'd say that's the same thing you have to do with the gospel. You've got to know the elements of the gospel, the story of the gospel, the bigger narrative of the Bible, and then you've got to practice it and just yeah. immerse in a community that, that's regularly speaking it over and over and over again. And it will take probably years to yeah. get fluent in. Yeah. And that's okay. It's it it's the most important thing you should devote your life to. Yeah, that's good. Well, I know that people are going to be kind of all over the map, the types of churches that they're in. And so, you know, hopefully we have a lot of people listening who they're in church where like, even just listening to you, I'm like, man, there's always some things I can tune up in this and be more careful as a preacher and as a leader and as a parent and a husband. And, um, and, and so, but maybe speak specifically to the person who's listening and they're in a church and they're like, this is in no way. Maybe we've seen a pastor that is in a church realizing this is really not, this is not a part of the culture of our church. What would be, so they don't just feel like I might as well just quit and fold the whole thing in. What would be your encouragement to them to take some steps in that direction? Well, if it's a pastor and they have the authority to lead their church in a certain way, I'd say start with repentance. I think leaders always have to start with repentance whenever God shows them something new that they didn't see before or points out an area of brokenness that they need to address. So start with repentance. And I'm not talking about just private, I mean public, because yeah. uh, as a leader, you've you've led a church in a particular way, and you need to probably say, hey, God's showing me some new things. I want to mm-hmm. grow in this. I want to have you guys pray for me. I want you to hold me accountable. Like, I see to our church 
on a pretty regular basis, if any one of us ever speaks from this platform and you don't hear us exalt Christ and you don't walk away with good news in the gospel, then you have every right to come talk to us and confront us about the fact that we've walked away from the gospel in our preaching. Yeah. So I, I want my congregation to even expect that and hold us accountable for it. So I'd say if you're a pastor, begin doing that and then then do some good reading and studying on how to start making Christ the the, the center of your, your message, you know, and there's lots, like I already mentioned Edmund Clowney, I think he's really good at helping you with that, and Keller and him have both done some training that you can find online together yep. to learn how to do that better. Um, so I'd recommend, you know, reading people like him um, or others. Um, and then and then really holding yourself accountable to say, if, if, if every time I write a message, he isn't going to be the hero at the mm-hmm. end of the message, then I've, I've got to go back and rewrite this until he does become that. Yeah. Um, so from that point of view, I'd say do that. If, if you're part of a church and you can't control that, I would, I would probably recommend that you talk to your pastor about that and yeah. just ask, you know, have you ever thought about how Christ could be the the hero of every every story and the the point of every message and um, and but you have to do that with gentleness and respect and great honor because pastors are working really hard to love their church and all of them want really want to do I believe yeah. the right things they just are all growing like myself and you so yep. so you have to do that in an honorable patient godly way start with just praying for your leaders that's the best thing to do pray pray for them it's yep. amazing what God will do through your prayers but but don't neglect the fact that it doesn't always have to come from the platform it can come in your own household in your own life in your that's own community good. Just start doing it. Be faithful where God's given you authority. Yeah. And authority's given you, exercise that authority in a way that honors Christ. Yeah. And so start there. Well, I don't mean to end on a negative note, but <clears throat> at what point would you, um, you know, I think I've had a lot of people ask me, like, when do, you, when do you know it's the right time to leave your church or what's a good reason to leave your church? And obviously the epidemic of, like consumer driven hopping from one church to another. None of us as pastors would ever encourage that. But, um, you know, a guy or a gal has gone to their pastor. They don't believe their pastor's doing this faithfully. It's not a part of the culture of the church. Uh, what, what would be some of the things that you would point to? Um, and I know you'd even want to be careful in speaking into this, but are there specific things that you'd say, these would be some signs that maybe it's time to think about transition? Yeah, I think when a, when a pastor is unwilling to listen to anybody, I think that you know that Matthew eighteen is pretty clear about that. Yeah, that the the goal of coming and confronting a brother or sister is that they would listen. Mm-hmm. So if they're unwilling to listen, that's a big problem. Yeah. So uh, if they're not willing to even sit down and say, "Hey, I want to hear you out," like I I'm I know I'm not perfect. So yeah. speaking of life, if there's an unwillingness on a leaders in a leadership to listen to the people that God's given them to shepherd, that's arrogance. And I'd say you know prayerfully continue to to seek and you know employ the person to listen. Uh, but if they're unwilling to listen, that's a problem. Um, if if they're unwilling to let anybody else speak into their life, other leaders around them, if they're unsubmissive to anybody, I mean, they're, they're, yeah, they don't submit their lives to anybody over them. That's a problem. So that'd be one thing I'd be looking at as a, a real red flag eventually. Um, I've I've counseled people through this in the past, and they've they said, you know, I met with my pastor. He says he doesn't really believe that when you preach, you necessarily need to pre- preach the gospel on a regular basis. Uh, and I, I they've said, what do I do next? And I said, well. You, you have to ask yourself, do you believe that that's a fundamental conviction you have? And you, in staying in a church where the pastor doesn't share that conviction, you're fundamentally rebelling against him in your heart on every single Sunday. Yeah. 
that that's that's not submission. That's actually division. Yeah. And ultimately, that will hurt your leader. It'll hurt your church, and it'll hurt your own spiritual journey. So the honorable thing at that point is to be able to sit down with your pastor and say, "I do not want to be a divisive member. I do not want to be an unsubmissive member. But my conscience will not allow me to stay in this place where I have a deep, deep conviction that." Mm-hmm. Our church and you don't hold to. So how do I honor you as I move forward? Would you like to, one, continue to discuss this and see if you could win me over or I can win you over? Or two, would you recommend I leave? And if so, I want to leave in a way that would honor you. Can you let me know the best way to honor you as I leave? Mm -hmm. I think that's a very honorable way to hold your convictions but still uphold the biblical conviction that we submit to our leaders above us. So that's good. Well, I would strongly recommend that uh, anybody wanting to grow in their ability to preach in a more Christ-centered manner and just regular believers wanting to learn to live in a more gospel-centered manner would really pick up gospel fluency and listen to your preaching. Um, I've told you this before, but you're always very stretching for me every time I talk to you and read you. So I'm grateful for you, grateful for yet another great book from you, and thank you for your commitment to uh, training so many of us who are a part of the church. Well, thank you very much. It really is a blessing, and I'm thankful to hear that God's using it in some way. All right. Well, that was another great conversation with Jeff. I'm very thankful to him for his time and willingness to talk again. So, Scott, what are the couple things that really jump out to you? Yeah, I mean, you you said it in the episode. Um, you know, we both got to, to experience Jeff teaching in mm-hmm. a couple different um, environments, and he just has a way of, I think, helping you step back and look at what you're doing, and and um, and really look. So, so are we are we really? Um, teaching the gospel as we ought to mm-hmm. and is it really permeating in people's lives right. the way that that um, the way that it should yeah. and so I always walk away from any um, uh, whether it's this conversation or hearing him teach kind of um, thinking about those things I think that uh, one thing I really appreciated you know he gave that list of of what they measure in their yeah. church as far as people's growing and, uh, and it's really helpful because it, it, it feels like a holistic list, yeah. um, which it can be hard sometimes. We can, we can judge, you know, is our church healthy by, do we have more people on Sunday? Yeah. And that's a part, and, yeah. he, and, he's, and he says that, um, but it's more than that. And yeah, so, and the sheer fact that they measure, I yeah. think, is a really big deal. A lot of churches don't, don't really measure anything, maybe even would be quick to downplay the necessity yeah. of measuring things. And um, and I think that there's enough numbers recorded in the Bible to tell us that 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 measuring is a good thing for yeah. us to do. That it's part of being a good steward. Totally. And I do. I agree with you. I think the fact that they. I think most every church measures something. Sure. It's just a matter of what, and usually it tends to be. I guarantee you, every church is counting the offering. Yeah. So you're at least keeping that measurement. Yeah. We or keep or they're getting of, evicted. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, baptism and attendance, those tend to be the three things that are measurable. And I do really appreciate the way that he broadened that out and expanded and gave us more categories to think about how we can be really keeping track of the souls that God's entrusted to us. Yeah, for sure. I also thought um, he said said, uh, people sometimes have more confidence in the written word of God uh, then uh, they have more confidence in the written word of God than the incarnate word of God that the written word is pointing to. Yeah, that's pretty convicting. Yeah, and I just I I step back and 
first of all, thought like, man, I, I think I can do that. Yeah. And, um, and that was like the Pharisees whole thing. Yeah. Like it was all like love, love the law, which in and of itself wasn't bad, but, but it became about the law. Life yeah. became about the law. And I think the moment that we forget that the Bible is ultimately about Jesus and it's meant to help us love Jesus and worship Jesus and follow Jesus, yeah. then uh, it's become something that God didn't intend for it to be. Yeah, and it's so, I think it's so easy to do because God's Word is so important. It and is, we, yeah. and, we, and it is so highly valued, at least I know in our church yeah. and I know in His. And so... Um, it can be a, a small nuance, but it can also lead down the road, like you're saying, the Pharisees, and we can uh, start to create these um, these rules and these standards, even even subconsciously. I mm-hmm. think that um, that can be sometimes anti-gospel, yeah, and sometimes totally. lead to uh, lead to a bad place. Yeah. So I also appreciated, especially as a pastor, the criteria and counsel that he gave to someone who feels like they're in a church where the gospel's not being faithfully preached. Yeah, and, that was good. And, and, and rather than just be like, uh, you know, I've, I've had some, I've even been probably the uh, young, overzealous, well-intentioned, but arrogant in my way that I like lobbed grenades at, you know, a pastor that I've had or a yeah. ministry leader that I didn't think was being everything that, of course, in my arrogance, I thought they should be. Yeah, and I just yeah. appreciated the humility um, that he demonstrated and how he would counsel someone and thought that was really clear criteria. And so anyone that might be in a church right now that is feeling really frustrated, I think to follow his advice uh, is is good because it was sound counsel. Yeah. And I, I thought of, I thought of, so if, if I was in the position of the pastor and somebody came to me and, and handled it that way, I mean, I, I was like, I would, I would feel pretty honored. Yeah, hundred percent. And they're taking seriously uh, the word of God, taking seriously the gospel, but they're also being super honoring. Yeah, and I think uh, that's just that's a win. So yeah, that's, I thought that was great. Yeah. Anything else that jumps out to you specific? No, I think uh, I think it was a great conversation. Um, uh, I'm pumped. I'm gonna I'm gonna dive into his book and uh, myself and and yeah, really really thankful for him and. Um, just the, the perspective that he brings and the way that he brings it, because yeah. both of those, I think, are, 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 um, are done really well. Yeah. So. Well, the book is Gospel Fluency. It's published by Crossway. Uh, Jeff Vanderstelt is the author. Thanks again to him coming on. Um, as always, you can find more episodes of In the Room uh, on my blog, ryanhugley.com, or on iTunes. I uh, would encourage you to uh, join us uh, on social media. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook uh, at Ryan Hughley. Uh, Scotty, all your stuff is on. Yep. It's all Scott, yeah. Scott at, William at, at the third Holt House. Exactly. <laughs> your at, middle name's not even William. <laughs> it's not, no, but it's Douglas, <laughs> it's which close. is pretty close. Pretty close, strong yeah. British name. Also, a uh, quick side note, yeah. I went to Old Navy the other day to uh-huh. return some things, and they gave me a merchandise credit, and the lady thought, my middle name was my name, mm-hmm. but she spelled it wrong. So it was. How it do you was, spell Scott wrong? Well, she spelled my middle name Douglas wrong. Oh, okay. and so on the thing it said it said Dolas. Dolas. D o u g h l a s. Which so. is also the way that I will be referring to you from now on. <laughs> yes, it's going to be my pen name. So Good. I like that. Look for the ra- the the newest release, uh, seven hours or less, <laughs> by Dolas Holthouse. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening to In the Room. We'll have a new episode up next week. So we appreciate you paying attention. See you then.